This is our new Asia series from Control Risks, where we bring you insights from our in-house experts on the most pressing political, economic, and security risks we see emerging in the Asia-Pacific. I'm Dane Chamorro, a partner in our Asia business. From our offices in Singapore, Shanghai, New Delhi, and elsewhere, our team of specialist consultants help businesses that are operating and investing amidst a whole manner of challenges. This ranges from political and regulatory analysis to vendor screening, strategic intelligence, crisis planning, and cyber response, just to name a few. Today, I'm speaking with Lin Nguyen, a lead consultant on our Vietnam team. Lin has an advanced degree from SOAS and began her career as a journalist with the Financial Times in Vietnam. You don't want to invest like millions of dollars in a factory in a country where it changes the government leaders every year or change the legal framework too often. So in Vietnam, we only have one communist party. Unlike, for example, in Indonesia, where you see protests against some of the policies or unpredictable leaders like Philippines. That and more coming up in this episode from Control Risk Asia Pacific team. There has been a winner from a foreign investment perspective in Southeast Asia over the last five years. It's undoubtedly Vietnam. The economy has been growing on average 6% or more and has attracted unprecedented amounts of manufacturing investment, predominantly from North Asia, especially China, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. The government also took early measures to shut down and isolate key sectors of the economy during the recent COVID crisis, and thus emerged as a real standout performer from a crisis management perspective. As a part of our team of half a dozen Vietnamese specialists, Lynn assists our clients navigating a highly attractive, but at times very untransparent and challenging market. I started by asking her to describe Vietnam's so-called magic formula for attracting foreign investment. Political stability is the most important reason, I think, uh, because the one-party regimes allows Vietnam to maintain a relatively stable political system. Of course, you don't want to invest millions of dollars in a factory in a country where it changes the government leaders every year, right? Or change the legal framework too often. So that's like one very strong advantage in Vietnam that we see. Uh, in addition, um, relatively cheap and hardworking labor compared to China is also a plus point for Vietnam. Um, although some might argue that Vietnamese laborers are not as skillful enough as Ch Chinese laborers to make sophisticated products uh, like in China. So the value added from those API companies to Vietnam is very small. Um, another point is uh, the low operational cost thanks to the uh, attractive incentives for FDI companies. For example, like freelance for the first uh, 50 years or free tax for the first five to 10 years. Uh, because of the decentralization in Vietnam, it's uh, not only encouraged development outside of the main cities where central government has strong influence, like in Hanoi or Ho Chi Minh City, uh, but also put responsibility on ex-provincial government to meet economic growth targets and attract more investments. Uh, therefore, each province uh, has set up very special initiatives to attract more investors into the province. So you... You know, what you've described is kind of a China model, so to speak, of attracting manufacturing, foreign manufacturing. You touched upon land. Acquisition of land is traditionally quite challenging in Southeast Asia, South Asia region. So I'd like you to expand a little bit on, on the challenges of acquiring land in Vietnam and any other challenges that we see uh, our, our clients encountering in that market, because it is 
often not the most transparent of operating environments. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, the opaque operation of uh, both uh, government system and business uh, in Vietnam is very challenging for foreign investors. And yeah, land acquisition is one of the key challenges in Vietnam uh, because, as you know, land is not like privately owned in Vietnam; it's owned by the state. So you don't uh, have like right to own a land, but you have to like rent a land use right from the government for like 49 years or 99 years, and that's where corruptions come across. Whereas like lots of government officers uh, took advantage of that and by selling land access to private sectors with very cheap price and then those private company will start building a skyscraper there or reselling it to foreign investor with like uh, huge money that's where we see the problem in Vietnam and recently because of the anti-corruption in Vietnam where they chase after those uh, who made the uh, big money from those uh, real estate projects uh, there's we see the slowdown in land approval in Vietnam for big real estate projects. Uh, for example, there's a big project in Ho Chi Minh City where it's like lots of big investors putting billion dollars in that and it's now stuck for like more than 12 months because no one dare to approve the license or land access in that area. So that's like a big challenge for investors in Vietnam. I could see in the next at least like a year or two. But uh, one new dynamic I wanted to emphasize is that um, unlike in the past where state-owned enterprise dominating the economy in terms of resources and incentives, we have seen recently an increase in influential private uh, conglomerates, uh, which really posed a concern over the race of protectionism in Vietnam. This happened in various sectors, for example. Uh, automobile pharmaceutical where the government create a lot of uh, favorable policy for its local conglomerates to uh, play against like foreign investors in the countries. There's a couple of interesting points I want to pick up on there. One was you mentioned the large project in Ho Chi Minh City, a billion dollars or so that's been delayed. Is that related to the corruption crackdown that's been going on within the government, within the party, led by the general secretary president. Is it the fear that if a government bureaucrat approves something that then that he might get investigated for corruption? Is is that the reason for the for the slowdown? Yes, exactly. Uh, so that project project it was approved by the previous uh, Ho Chi Minh City chairman and then he's now stepped out and the new in uh, the new person also supported that the uh, projects and he was cracked out by anti-corruption and he's now in fact in jail. So we have a new chair, another new chairman of Ho Chi Minh City who doesn't dare to make any decision at all, not only on that specific project, but on uh, many other major decisions as well. Right. So everybody's kind of a, a little bit afraid to make decisions. You also mentioned the rise of private conglomerates, uh, which is relatively new, kind of in the last five years, at least in terms of the size of some of these entities, and how in some ways you also mentioned the way they've kind of, in some in sectors, muscled out state-owned enterprises that were traditionally dominant. So from a foreign investor's perspective, if you had to find a partner, for example, what would be some of the attractions of dealing with one of the big private conglomerates that you, that you touched upon versus a state-owned entity? Uh, that's a very good question. In terms of the transparency, at least we can say that those private conglomerates, they are relatively more transparent than SLE. It's easier to navigate, although 
uh, with giants conglomerates, sometimes uh, what we see on paper is not what's really behind the scenes. So the lesson we normally advise our client is know your partner very well. You might have like 100 meetings with them, but that doesn't mean that you really understand and you, you really know your partner. And I assume most of these companies, even if they're quite large, they're still essentially family businesses, right? They're still run by first-generation entrepreneurs and their families? Yes, you're right. Uh, the reason for that because uh, Vietnam only opened for private sectors uh, after the 86. So we only see the soar of private company in Vietnam in early 90. Unlike in other countries like Indonesia, Philippines, where we see like family companies, which like, last for a very long time, much longer than in Vietnam. So staying on the topic of privatization of the economy or some of the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, I know they don't use that phrase in Vietnam, they prefer equitization of state-owned entities, which is slightly less uh, uh, politically sensitive. Um, there's been a plan by several governments now, prime ministers and, and Politburo, announcements to, to equitize at least some of the portion of the state's ownership in a number of these businesses, um, of which there are still many thousands. And every year they come out with pretty aggressive targets. Uh, we're going to equitize 600 or 500 or 400, but they never really get very far. Um, it seems to be quite a slow process, even though from what when we talk to our clients, we know there's a lot of interest in some of those uh, some of those entities. So can you give us some insight as to why this process takes so long? So uh, there are two types of uh, SOEs in Vietnam. I could put that put it that way. One type is the cash count, where they make a lot of money. Uh, I can name some. The beer company that Vietnam just sold to the Thai investor for 5 billion US dollar, for example. Uh, so those are cash cow that the government doesn't want to sell because it's give, like every year it can get like billion US dollar for the state budget. And with those companies, you can sell easily uh, on the market. The other type of SOEs are those like we call sinking SOEs or those with a lot of bad debts, with very uh, dodgy opaque operations that no one wanted to touch on. Um, so if you buy those SOEs, that means you buy like a huge debt of them. So obviously when we talk about that equitization, there's a political element to it and that would be true anywhere. Um, I know that Vietnam is coming up to a, a change in the government and the party lineup in 2021. So we'll have a, a whole new central committee and a new Politburo. We'll have new prime minister, new president, etc. Um, even though that's still around a year away or so, but what do we see changing in the run-up to that? And what do we see in the aftermath? Should we expect big changes or is it going to be stable going forward despite the fact that we'll have new people in place? So here's the question I normally, I often ask. Does the change really matter, especially for foreign investors? Could like the new prime minister or the new party chief like really make any difference to their business in Vietnam? If the GDP is still like six seven percent, although after the COVID outbreak, I I don't think Vietnam can meet that uh, growth target. Uh, but yeah, in general, I think that whoever will be the next next uh, leaders in Vietnam, they will still pursue a pro investment policy because at the end of the day, they all need the economic growth to prove their performance and to gain more votes in the system. Of course, when it comes to very specific deals, for example, if you partner with some specific company in Vietnam or you invest in some specific projects that have interest of some other senior political 
leaders. Whether they are successful or fail next year will be a big story for you and your investment. And that's where we suggest our clients have to watch very closely. So to summarize some of Lynn's points here, she said that consistency in government policy toward foreign investors, interprovincial competition, and a generally low-cost base had helped propel Vietnam to the top ranks of FDI destinations. However, the ongoing anti-corruption campaign of the General Secretary Trong had slowed some of the larger projects, particularly where acquisition of land is involved. And the rise of large private conglomerates, which is relatively new to Vietnam, had led to more protectionism in certain sectors such as automobiles and pharmaceuticals. Thank you all for listening. This was another in our New Asia podcast series, and we'll be back with more in the coming days. In the meantime, please go to our website, controlrisk.com, for more analysis, or you can subscribe to all our podcasts on Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Just search for Control Risks.